it, it takes the physical things that are like really sedentary in a space, like buildings, homes, trees, things that aren't going to move easily. And I feel like it lays all of those things out really well. But one thing that came to mind for me was that pedestrian friendliness doesn't always equate to safety, whether that be real or perceived. Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Hi, Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees, degrees to the streets. streets. Podcast. Um, we are excited for our episode today. We actually didn't do this all of season three, so we're welcoming this back now for season four. It's a how-to episode. I'll get into the topic, but first, Jasmine, how are you doing? I'm doing fine and dandy. I have been appreciating California for all things environment. It really just shows you that you are just a small facet of life on earth, that there are animals and trees and water and sky that all are impacted and all relate to each other and I'm just here for the ride so I've been enjoying California for teaching me the value of the environment so how are you Nemo is it because it takes you 24 hours to get from the top to the bottom of the state if you're insane in California is insanely large oh you know what's a good debate for us to have real quick what is the east coast Nemo (laughs) Um, I think the East Coast is everything above Virginia, (laughs) but it is also, that's my social answer, but I also refer to it as the Eastern Seaboard sometimes. Exactly. I'm glad we're on the same page. (laughs) I had a debate with someone the other day. This girl I met was like, I'm from Virginia. I was like, oh, I'm from Jersey. She was like, go East Coast. I was like, that's the South. She was like, no, I'm, I'm I'm from the East Coast. I said, the, geographically, yes, that is the eastern coastal side of the country, right? Understood. But the East Coast is the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and sometimes Philadelphia. Like, that's the East Coast. Delaware, D.C. That's mid-Atlantic. Okay, so I maybe this is where we differ. I don't really feel like the mid-Atlantic is a thing. Like, would you ever say, I guess the DMV would be, how it's like I the would. only thing yeah, yeah. Maryland, it's really mid-Atlantic and I was talking I was funny I was talking to someone about this recently like what mid-Atlantic what is considered mid-Atlantic and they yeah. didn't make that was just neat but it's basically like Delaware Maryland and DC and Northern Virginia <laughs> yeah I think so I think thinking about what's the places on the eastern seaboard New England the east coast DMV, the South, then Florida. You don't consider New England the East Coast? It's on the Eastern Coast, but culturally, that's New England. Like, that's their New England. Yeah, so that's what that's the word for it. My first answer for me to say that everything above Virginia is the East Coast is the culturally. But I think Northeast, I think the North, New England, New England's mm-hmm. culture is not gonna say the whole like it's too much to say the the east coast is just one culture no but I of think course the not. northeast i think the like new england they have a culture that is associated with the different types of east coast culture okay that there's but that means that there's a little bit separate like i truly believe that and maybe it's just a, a interchanging of words between saying mid-atlantic and dmv east coast and tri-state area but i think when i think if someone tells me I'm from the East Coast, my mind is thinking they're from New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. And sometimes I don't even, I just think New York and New Jersey. Like, I don't think about the, I don't think about South Carolina as being from the East Coast. Like, that's the South. Like, I get that there's yeah. beaches and they're on the coast, but that's the South. Like, I culturally. I at the, at the, at the Mason-Dixon. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I would agree with that. That's, but if someone tells me they're from the East Coast and they're like, I'm from, I grew up in Rhode Island. I say, okay, that's the East Coast. <laughs> I give them that. I have a different opinion. I'd be like, okay, New Englander, go Patriots. This is also <laughs> someone who's from the West Coast. And when people say they're in California and I'm like, 
because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, which is culturally mm-hmm. a little different than most places in California. So does, is Denver the West? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so where does the West and the Midwest end? Like, where does the Midwest end and the West begin? Yeah, because I think Arizona is West. I consider Arizona West Coast. I consider Denver. Even though it doesn't touch the coast? Yeah. It's like that Western, I think like time zone too, depending. Okay, I think the time zone is a like good point. Pacific Coast, they have their time, but I think sometimes Arizona, I think depending on the season, because some of them don't do daylight yeah, savings. Yeah, Arizona doesn't change for daylight savings. So half the year, they're the same time zone as California, and then the other half of the year, they're an hour behind, I think, is how it goes. Okay. Arizona that's a fun topic everybody let us know what you think is the east coast and if there's a difference geographically and culturally right and the man-made things like daylight saving time (laughs) (laughs) we could have been doing more important things like saving the planet but we want to mess up the sun and the the lord (laughs) but I don't know enough about that to speak on it so anyway the topic for today we're going to be discussing environmental tools that you can use in your daily life that you can find on Google that you can access easily without a subscription or paywall or anything like that. So back in season two, we released our first how-to episode about researching your neighborhood. Um, And that included uh, topics like census data, data from housing and urban development. um, And you can listen to that episode on all podcast streaming platforms. So this episode is similar to that in the way that we'll discuss tools Um, that you can use to assess the environmental condition of your um, neighborhood or your region. And we wanted to look at um, this to specifically help people understand um, the purpose of the tools, how to use it, and when you can use it in your everyday life. And I will now pass it over to Jasmine to get into some of the specific tools. So thanks, Nemo. We're going to talk about WalkScore, which is a... um, platform that you can use to assess the walkability of your neighborhood. We're going to talk about the US EPA environmental justice screen, which is a tool that lets you measure a host of environmental conditions. Um, The EPA greenhouse gas emissions calculator for those who are curious about their own personal GHG consumption and usage. And then we'll do a slight uh, honorable mention of the UC Berkeley uh, cool climate maps. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with water. So we're talking Water, land, and air. And let's get into it. So the first tool, and to Nemo's point, these are tools that are free. They're online. You don't need a subscription. While some of them may have a paid uh, platform, like WalkScore has a paid version, the free version is just as useful and very helpful. These are tools that planners, um, sometimes architects, but definitely planners and engineers and local government officials are very familiar with using. And they can be really helpful for people in a host of different scenarios. Um, Say you're looking to move to a new city and you're curious about air quality because you have an air quality concern. Maybe you have asthma. You just don't want to live somewhere that's super polluted. Say you don't have a car. You want to live somewhere that's walkable. Say you want to map out your commute shed or something like that. They're all very useful um, tools for people, whether you're studying the environment from a professional standpoint or you're just curious about your own neighborhood. So let's jump into WalkScore. WalkScore is um, an online tool where you enter in an address and it can determine the pedestrian, biker, and transit user accessibility of a location. So you get a walk score, a bike score, and a transit score. Uh, from zero to 100 is the rating. The higher number means the more accessible it is for that mode of transportation. It was originally created by a startup, an incubator firm called Front Seat, and is now owned by Redfin. And we'll get into why Redfin's ownership of walk score is very important. Redfin, for those who don't know, is a major real estate um, sales firm. They sell, they are a platform for people to sell their homes, their realtors, but they also list apartments as well. WalkScore's mission is very simple. This is from their website. WalkScore's mission is to promote walkable neighborhoods. Walkable neighborhoods are one of the simplest and best solutions for the environment, our health, and our economy. So 
like I mentioned, the tools helpful for a lot of purposes. You're looking for a place to live. You want to find a home that's in a walkable neighborhood. You're looking for a place to live and you want to be in a certain distance from a particular bus stop or rail station. So you're living in New York and you live in Brooklyn and you need to get to Midtown for work. Well, you don't necessarily want to live on a line. You have to transfer twice to get to Midtown. You want to live on a line that gets you straight into the city as quick as possible. Say you're staying in a hotel or an Airbnb or a friend's house, and you want to know what destinations, grocery stores, retail stores, theaters, parks, whatever, are in walking distance of that area where you're staying. So it's not even just helpful for people who are looking for a place to permanently live, but if you're staying somewhere in a new city for uh, the first time. And so Redfin purchased it because majority of times people are looking for them, looking at this tool as a way to determine the walkability or accessibility of their neighbor where they choose to live. And so to get into the score, you enter in an address. So I entered an address in Los Angeles, and it will tell you the walk score, the transit score, and the bike score of that neighborhood. You can also enter in a second address, whether that's your work or your school or your parents' house, and it will tell you the average commute time both during rush hour and after rush hour that it would take in a car, on a bus, on a train, on a bike, or as a pedestrian. And I thought that's very helpful because something may be geographically two miles away, but especially in Los Angeles, it could take 20 minutes. That was a big thing for me when I was deciding my last place to live because I was also going to be starting a new job and a new location. And so like, I, I'm, as you say it back, I realized how much I prioritized that. Like I wasn't even looking at the distance from the grocery store. I was like, what is it going to take in traffic for me to get to it? Cause that feels like a daily part of my life. Um, that feels like a daily part of my life that I know me personally, I don't like sitting in traffic and I knew that the train wouldn't be an option or biking um, or walking wasn't going to be an option. Um, and there probably is a walking route. I I haven't checked that. Like how, how long would it take for me to walk to work? But it's like, do I want to do that in the heat of the summer or in the cold of the winter? It's just not realistic, um, which may be another lens of like, I think the score could the scores could go on and on and on about what things they analyze. So I'll let you finish. The methodology is pretty dense though. I was very impressed um, with it. And so for every category, you get a ranking from zero to 100. Between zero and 24, that means it's car dependent, meaning that almost all of the errands require a car. From 25 to 49, it means... <clears throat> It can also be car dependent, meaning that most of the errands require a car. Between 50 and 69, it's somewhat walkable or somewhat bikeable or somewhat transit accessible, meaning that some of your errands can be completed with a different mode of transportation. And then from 17 to 89, most errands can be accomplished on foot. And then from 90 to 100, so that top tier, daily errands do not require a car. The way that walk score comes up with this metric is they measure walkability based on proximity to nearby destinations that is using for my GIS people in the room. They're using a spatial regression model and the friendliness of that walk. And that includes population density and certain road characteristics, such as the length of the block or the intersection density. And here's where I'll jump onto my little planning bag. Walk score is kind of based on those three D's of walkability, density, diversity, and design. And I'll run through them fairly quickly. Density, in urban planning, density is conceptualized in terms of population, employment, businesses, trees, etc. per unit of area. Higher densities bring origins, your home, your school, your job, and destinations, grocery stores, schools, other jobs, retail stores, theaters closer together. And that makes proximity easier to walk or bike as opposed to driving. If something is 500 feet away versus 500 miles away, that's an extreme example, you can likely walk there. Diversity comes into play in meaning that a dense community must have more than just a high concentration of people or places in one area. Even the rationale for density promotes walkability and land use. A rich, a rich mixture of land uses, stores, parks, 
homes, businesses, promotes non-motorized travel, meaning walking or biking or transit, because they're located in proximity to each other. Homes, retail, restaurant, entertainment venues, and offices are mixed together, so it becomes easy for people to walk in between those destinations. And then finally, design. Design is what WalkScore calls the friendliness of the walk. Design is a measure of the quality of non-motorized user infrastructure, meaning a neighborhood that prioritizes good transit service has infrastructure to support transit riders, such as bus stops with a bus shelter in case it rains, or a sidewalk that is wide enough for people to walk two by two across with a stroller, for example. A neighborhood may have a high population density, meaning they may have lots of people in a certain square mile, and they also may have a strong mixture of land uses, homes and stores together, but if the route to access those destinations is unpleasant, only people with absolute necessity will walk or bike to those destinations. So let's take LA, for example. There are many areas that are geographically close to each other. They might be less than a half a mile away, but the five or the 10 or the 101 highway might be cutting right through the middle of that half mile walk, meaning that, yes, I could walk to that grocery store because it geographically is close to my home and I can physically access it. However, the route that I have to take is not pleasant. I have to walk under an overpass, literally over the mountains and through the woods, meaning I'm just going to drive there. And that is often the design piece is what I think is the best part about walk scores. They're not just measuring, oh, it says that the target is across the street, but walk scores taking into account that that street is a hundred feet wide and the average speed on that street is 70 miles per hour. And so realistically, it might not be that easy for you to get across there. And that's going to lower their walk score. Was there anything in the criteria about physical ability or do you feel like the score assumes everyone is at the same level of like fit, like ability to walk a certain distance or walk a certain incline yeah, that's interesting. I did not, and that is my just able-bodied mind thinking not to question that, but I, I truthfully don't know. They did mention that they looked at intersection density and the quality of the roadway. I am not, it is not clear to me if that quality incorporates various ADA compliant metrics or steepness of hills or different things like that, but that's an excellent point. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to be like Simon Cowell. Like, I think this is great. <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it really, I think walk score does, it, it takes the physical things that are like really sedentary in a space, like buildings, homes, trees, things that aren't going to move easily. And I feel like it lays all of those things out really well. But one thing that came to mind for me was that pedestrian friendliness doesn't always equate to safety, whether that be real or perceived. Um, because I, you know, I see certain neighborhoods that have all the sidewalks in the world. They have a bunch of bus stops and there's transit sprinkled in, but is there a police with its lights on every other corner or are there overgrown trees or, um, shrubbery that is blocking site points to where you can see what's going on? And is there also just a lack of other people walking outside that make you feel like you don't want to walk around in a neighborhood? So it's like, I think the tools, and this will kind of be a theme as we go through the episode, I think tools are, there are a good starting point for how we talk about places. And it definitely makes like this experience of walking, biking, or taking transit more three-dimensional. But there are certain vibes that I feel like just can, may not be able to be measured. So I wonder if they do any sort of public input for the scores. Like if you have, a, if your neighborhood has a score, can you comment on it? Can you say like, hey, this doesn't, um, you know, these are things to consider in the score or give them ideas for new metrics to add. But I think I would love to see if I saw what if I was looking for a house, looking for somewhere to live, if I saw a walk score and then saw either public agreement or public disagreement, um, if they agreed with it or not. No, that's an excellent point. I think all tools are not perfect, right? We're using imperfect data to make decisions. And 
as always, it's always better for you to go out and see for yourself, especially if you're using this in a sense. Okay, say you're moving and I can speak from firsthand experience. I was moving to LA from New Jersey and I really wanted to live in a neighborhood that's walkable. I do have a car and I knew I was going to need to drive around LA often, but in my immediate vicinity, I wanted to be able to like get to the grocery store, at least have a restaurant that I could just go to really quickly without having to drive if I didn't feel like cooking dinner. And so I looked up communities and once I found like a, a building that I liked, I type in the address in walk score and I would find that the walk score was like 80. So then when I came to LA to do my tour, I was looking, I'm like, does this feel like an 80 to me? Like, do I feel like I can do most of my things without a car and like make my own judgment around it? So I think while the data is imperfect, if you are using it to look for a home or to explore your tr potential commute, I would say use it as a starting point, like start with this. And then go, if you have the ability to go out to the site, especially if you are unfamiliar with that area or if you have um, certain physical challenges that you know you need to make sure, okay, if this place is on a hill, I absolutely cannot walk there. Even if it says I can, I need to go map it out. But I think it is an excellent starting point for just exploring a neighborhood, exploring the options. Um, and unfortunately, I think it has been, the reason maybe why, to your point, Nima, why the tool hasn't been integrated in the sense that like it includes community input or like the ability to rate it and agree with the score is because, and this goes back to the ownership, it's owned by Redfin, who is a real estate sales shop. Their goal is for every listing to say one bedroom, one and a half baths, walk score of 80. Like they want it to be a marketing tool because people have been shown to want to live in walkable neighborhoods. And so I'm not going to say their integrity is there, but their purpose for the tool is not the same as the way that we're looking at it. Their purpose is a marketing strategy to get people to look at this particular listing because it has a higher walk score than another listing, for example. They truly put in a ribbon on some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, but like you said, it's like, it's a great starting point, but yeah, I think they're, I think their investment is obvious why they took it. I think you said it was a startup. Yeah. A startup had founded it and then Redfin bought it. And like the, when you're on the website, once you click into, you type in an address, you can select, look for apartments in this area. And it's like a link to apartments.com. Well, no, actually it's a link to Redfin's apartment listing site where you can find apartments in that same geographical area so it's definitely a um a pull to moving somewhere it's how the tool is currently envisioned to be used yeah i should definitely look because i have my perceived thoughts about some walkable places in dc but i think it would give me more context on like how is this tool um this tool rating it so for our next tool, we will be, and this also goes into kind of household and how you live and some personal choices, um, but the EPA um, has a greenhouse gas emissions calculator, and I'll break down what that means. So the US EPA or the United States Environmental Protection Agency, they are a federal agency responsible for clean air, land, water, reducing environmental risk in the US. They also create mandate, regulate, um, enforce federal laws that protect human health and the environment. They're also responsible for environmental stewardship. So thinking about how we preserve and think about the future of the current environment that we have. Um, they, also they also produce information, resources, fact sheets for the environment. Um, they're also responsible for cleaning up harmful sites and doing chemical safety reviews. For instance, things we have in our products every day that may be harmful to the environment or us. They um, are responsible for a whole lot of stuff. They <laughs> do. An insane list. They do. I don't know how they break it up. It's all so interesting to me, though. So I'm like, huh. <laughs> it's all really interesting. A master of, a master, what is it? A jack of all trades and a master of none? That's what it's given. It's like, how can you possibly be successful in all of these categories? And then, because even when you just look at all the things that are related to the environment, then that breaks down more to air, land, water. Like it all, everything has multiple tiers that you go down and then all the regulatory stuff in it too. So their greenhouse gas emissions calculator measures your personal 
carbon footprint. And your carbon footprint is the total amount of greenhouse gases that are generated by your actions. Greenhouse gases is consists of carbon dioxide and methane. There are probably other gases, but those are the two that are um those are the two that are most notable when you talk about greenhouse gases. Why is greenhouse gas important? An increase in greenhouse gases, so doing things that you do every day, um, are in, is increasing the amount of greenhouse gases going into the environment. Um, and the main cause is human, what it leads to if you have more greenhouse gases is human-induced climate change. So that contributes to air pollution, leads to toxic acid rain, it can change coastal and ocean patterns um, and the level of acid. So you could think about even if how you get your seafood, sea level rise, flooding. Um, it also worsens the melting of glaciers and polar ice. So globally, what you do increases greenhouse gases that goes into the atmosphere and it has an impact that comes right back to us. So this calculator estimates your footprint. So if you want to know how you're doing with your contribution to greenhouse gases, and this tool measures home energy, transportation, and waste. In a little, in a little bit, I'll talk about another tool that has a few other metrics, but for this specific EPA, and again, this is the U.S. agency for the, for the environment. And so most people would go to this calculator as a baseline, as a starting point of what they're looking at to measure. So it looks at home energy, transportation, and waste. And so if you want to do this calculator, you'll need to make sure you have your utility bills accessible or you just know from the top, off the top of your head on average what you pay for um, natural gas, for electricity, um, yeah, what you may, if you own a vehicle, what you may pay for fuel monthly, um, and then also mileage and maintenance costs that you may occur, that you may um, take as well. So I did first did this um, calculator probably about 10 years ago in an environmental science class. I didn't find what I, what I was at, where I was at and what I was doing. <laughs> I was not a household of one like I am now. So I did it in preparation for this episode. It took me about 10 to 15 minutes um, and I'm lower than the national average. So I feel good about that. <laughs> and that could be for a few things. I don't drive a lot. I recycle what I can. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, learned how to compost when I was in third grade. So all of these things may contribute to what I'm doing today. Um, and so when you, as you're going through and filling out, like I said, it takes 10 minutes or less, filling out your basic information about your utility bills. There are certain actions you can take or say that you will take or pledge to that could reduce your greenhouse gas emission, your greenhouse gas footprint, um, your carbon footprint. So I said I could turn down the heat in the winter or turn... Um, up the AC in the summer, uh, replace light bulbs, make sure that they're energy star efficient, um, enable power management features on my computer. So maybe having an auto shut off or um, if I have a, um, I cannot think of the word, a power strip, <laughs> you know, maybe shutting that off instead of just leaving everything running all the time um, and then washing your clothes in cold water. Some clothes I wash in cold water, but there are probably like two loads a week that I could also wash in cold water that I don't. So Nemo, are you able to find, and you said you're below the average, is that a national average? Or are you below the average for like your zip code area? Yeah, How is so it measured? Yeah, so that's the U.S. average. Okay. Um, so the U.S. average, like the average person um, or the average household, I should say, because um, that's what it measures your household carbon footprint. I just have to be a household of one, <laughs> um, is 19,702. Um, and I believe that is in pounds of CO2 uh, reduction. How many pounds are in a ton? Girl. I don't know. But let's just say 19,000. It's a lot. Right. 19,702 um, pounds of um, CO2 carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and I'm at um, 12,700. So a couple thousand um, pounds under the national average. Do you think that is? Because I think the average household size is about two people. Maybe it's like 2.3 with like what's a third, point third of a person. Do you think it is mostly attributed to your household size being one or truly the different things that you're doing that most people, like the average person is not doing? Yeah, I think it, I think it could be the 
like my just my consumption is lower um and so that's kind of, that's what they're getting at um with this specific uh with this specific calculator it's just like they're guessing what you consume based on how much you pay um or how much electricity you use or how much you drive and those sorts of things so i think just my consumption is a lot less which could impact that uh that difference too yeah, and I encourage everyone to call their utility company and ask what their recommended settings are for um, heating and cooling. If you want to laugh, because these people told me that I needed to set, I think it was like between 76 and 78 uh, Fahrenheit is what I needed to set my AC on in the winter if I wanted to, um, you know, keep a reasonable utility. You might as well not even have it on. <laughs> exactly. So I started laughing and he was like, that's what they told me. <laughs> And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> That's interesting because I do see the bill sometimes and it will show you like, here's your consumption compared to others in your neighborhood. And it's like, well, I don't know what they're doing over there. But I think it's important, especially as we move further and further down this climate change ladder, it will be on each of us to make small changes because they will have larger and lasting um, impacts on the environment. So Nemo, how does cool climate maps fit into this uh, EPA tool? Um, so cool climate maps, briefly, um, once you do the, e you can do the EPA calculator and determine your own greenhouse gas emissions. You can also look at your region and compare. And so the cool climate, um, coolclimate.org, we'll put it in the show notes. They look at the average of carbon footprints um, in uh, by zip code, by city, by region, I will say the data is a bit old. Um, so in the maps, it is showing data from 2013. Um, and they also have their own tool that includes more metrics on how we consume throughout the year outside of our house. So they also look at how much you travel, but how much you do air travel. Um, uh, they look at your food consumption as well and goods, um, how you buy furniture or clothing um, and other services that you may take. Um, and so the study... It was a study and then they used the cool climate to actually show the maps physically um, and the distribution of the greenhouse gas emissions calculator results in their carbon footprints. Um, and so they wanted to look at the profiles across the region, um, across the United States by zip code, city, county, and state level. Um, and they also wanted to look at how population density, so a lot of what Jasmine was just talking about with walk scores, how does population density and how urban the area that you live in has an impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And so they did find that there is a strong correlation between population density and the average household carbon footprint in large cities. However, the a lot of these large cities have large suburbs around them. And the data shows that your carbon footprint is higher in the suburbs. You may have to drive further to get to work. Like Jasmine just said, you have a larger home that requires more consumption. So a lot of these regions, they, we cancel each other out. If you look at the map, you'll see green for a lot of core city areas, which means that the overall household carbon footprint for these inner cities are low. And then all around it, you see red. And so some of the recommendations that they had from that was really creating custom carbon mitigation management strategies for regional planning. Um, and so plans should also be very local. So what people do at their local suburb level to reduce their footprint will look very different than what someone is doing in an already urban area. It's interesting because I, I feel like there's a book about New York City being the greenest place in the country. Um, I always try to find the book. I know I read it in grad school, but that is something that always struck with stuck with me. I think people have this perception that if you live in the suburbs, you're somehow more like you're greener than if you live in the city. And I think that's because people physically see like grass and trees and they're like, no, this must be cleaner. But it's like, no, no, no. Just because you have an acre of land and it's green doesn't mean that you're much, you're cleaner or you're using less greenhouse gas emissions, especially if you're cutting it every single Saturday with a gas lawnmower, you know, you know what I mean? Or Not me. don't be me. <laughs> <laughs> or you're fueling your 5,000 square foot home, like with heating and cooling all year round. Um, and this map we have is a screenshot of 
<laughs> the Northeast. It goes all the way down to Richmond, Virginia, apparently. <laughs> but I'd love, I'd love to see it from the West Coast. And so maybe we'll put, we'll make, maybe we'll make some reels and some posts to kind of show you guys how these tools work in real time. Um, I think it'd be really fun to work through. And if you have used any of them, send us your results and send us your feedback. So the next tool we want to get into is the EJ screen or the EPA environmental justice and mapping tool. Um, Before we get into that, I feel like we've talked about environmental justice a lot on this podcast, but just really quickly, environmental justice is a component of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, It provides that no person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability be excluded from the participation in or denied the benefits of or subject to discrimination under any program receiving federal financial assistance. It continues that each federal agency shall ensure that all programs or activities receiving federal financial assistance that may affect human health or the environment do not directly or through contractual or other arrangements use criteria, methods, or practices that discriminate on the base of race, color, or national origin. And you can see our other episodes. We have an episode called Attempted Remedies to remediate injustice came out in season one i think that's episode two where you can learn more about environmental justice did i get the title wrong we were very specific with our titles back then <laughs> that told you that's exactly what it was about that's a title for that <laughs> right <laughs> so the ej screen is a mapping tool that provides the EPA with a nationally consistent data set and approach for combining environmental and demographic socioeconomic indicators. EJ screen users, you choose a geographic area, so you can type in an address or a zip code even, and it provides demographic and socioeconomic and environmental information for that area. So you type in an address, and based on that census block group, which is the smallest a level of census data available, you can compare how one indicator compares to enough to that indicator's prevalence across the country. So for example, say you're curious about the level of ozone in your neighborhood. That's an indicator. You can compare ozone in your neighborhood to ozone in either the state that your neighborhood is within or the country. And you will get a percentile. So ozone in your neighborhood might be in the 90th to 100th percentile, or it could be in the 50th to 60th percentile, meaning it's less than average. If it's in the 90th to 100, it means it's more than average. And so you can compare how about 13 environmental indicators, particulate matter, ozone, diesel particulate matter, traffic proximity, lead paint, um, toxic releases into air, hazardous waste, wastewater discharge and a host of other in indicators you can compare how those environmental indicators are prevalent in your neighborhood compared to either the state or the country what i like about this tool is it not only factors in the prevalence of that environmental condition ozone pm but it also factors in race and income and so an area may have similar Um, environmental exposures, right? So I compared two different neighbors in LA, but one, the one that has the greater percentage of minorities and the greater percentage of people with low incomes is going to have a more riskier or higher EJ index. Understanding that low income and minority populations are the most at risk and at most exposure. And so it creates a multiple of both the environmental condition and the socioeconomic, those being race and income factors. So that Beverly Hills and West Adams by USC have similar diesel particulate matter concentrations, both in the 80th percentile. But Beverly Hills has a lower percentage of people who are low income and a lower percentage of minorities so that it has a diesel 
EJ index of only 56 as compared to West Adams, which has a higher one of 95. So that just shows you how to break it down and how this can be used in your own particular life. I think it's especially important for the proximity tools. Um, so you can compare how close your neighborhood is to a super fun site, a hazardous waste site, underground storage tanks, wastewater discharge, um, and risk, a facility risk management site. And I think that's very important because the closer that you live to those kind of noxious and toxic land uses, the more at risk you are to a whole host of other environmental and chemical even um, conditions. And so I think for someone looking for a place to live or want to understand their work site or their school where they're going to be for most hours, most hours of the day, I think this tool is very helpful for understanding your potential exposure to things and helping you decide where you want to spend most of your time, particularly outdoors. Yeah, I agree that the proximity piece is helpful and interesting that even like, okay, once you see that two different neighborhoods with two different racial and income areas have similar exposure to environmental toxins. But when you think beyond it, why is someone's race and income important when they both have the same exposure? Someone in a higher income area may be able to afford or have the insurance or access to get regular health checkups. They may be able to see some, if their environment is an impact to their health, they may be able to catch it earlier, or they may have the luxury of fueling their body with different things that helps them combat what do they call it? Free radicals, <laughs> the things that cause the things that cause um, that cause damage to ourselves, or could um, could uh, could spur different types of cancers. They may be able to combat different things. Whereas when you look at race and income, you're looking at a history of systemic neglect, um, both economically and based on discrimination um, and racism. Like, don't want to leave that out that are causing the overall life experience to be different than what someone in a higher income area may be experiencing. Even though the air they breathe may be the same, their quality of life is also impacted by different things. And to the point of understanding environmental justice, environmental justice has that component of race and income. And so just by sheer factor that there is a higher concentration of minorities and persons with low income in this area and there's this environmental piece means that when we make decisions as planners, as engineers, as policymakers, we have to be extremely careful around adding another highway to this area because now we're overburdening this particular population with conditions. And so I think that's very important also. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, so as we've said, you know, the EPA they do a lot. Um, they do a lot. And so definitely the environmental justice is a, is a, another aspect of monitoring those conditions for people in the U.S. Another tool from the EPA that we wanted to highlight looks at water quality. So the EPA has a tool called How's My Waterway? And the purpose of this tool is to provide the general public with information about the condition of their local waters based on data that states federal local government agencies have to report. And once you go into this tool, you can look at it on three tiers, community, state, and national levels. And so why is it important that this tool is spitting out information that these jurisdictions report? So the Clean Water Act that was first enacted in 1972 um, to uh, reduce water pollution in the U.S. Um, authorized that states, territories, and tribes have to monitor water impairments and report to the EPA every two years on the water that they are evaluating. And so that's called an assessment. And the, um, these reports in terms of what is considered an impairment, an impairment is anything where you can't use the water for what it could be used for. So there could be a body of water that you could swim in, you could fish in, you could drink from. And if the water cannot be used for that purpose because of the level of exposure to bacteria, um, for a lot of it is bacteria, but um, it could also be acidic, like um, the acidity of, cannot say that word right now. Don't know what I mean. <laughs> um, all the things that could be wrong with the waterway. 
Um, I wish we had more time. I feel like I want to do an episode just on water. Like I realized how, how like fascinated with water I was when I was looking at this. Um, so deciding what meets water quality standards. You can look in your, you can look, um, similarly, you can search by place name. You can search by zip code. Um, uh, you can also search by address to see the water in that area and if it is meeting the water quality standards for the specific uses. Um, and another reason, like, why why is this important? So say you go into the tool, you can also look and see um, when it was assessed. So as I said, they have EPA requires that they do it every two years. All jurisdictions may not be compliant with that. So you will be able to see that information. You'll be able to see what specific impairments exist and then what's been done to improve conditions. So maybe a body of water is not safe enough to drink, but maybe you can swim in it. I don't know if that those two go together, but <laughs> maybe you can't eat in it, but maybe you could vote. And maybe, maybe you can't eat the fish, but maybe you could get on a boat <laughs> and it's not harmful. Like, you know, so you can look at waterways in your areas and determine. Um, but as example, you know, I'm sure for people who are listening who may live in urban areas, they are very familiar with street sweeping and having to move your car from one side of the street to the other. So some people may see that as a, just a regular nuisance or they're just looking to get parking tickets from me. Street sweeping is actually one of the most effective ways to reduce trash and litter going into stormwaters. So it's one of the main tools that city use for stormwater pollution prevention. Um, and so similarly, there may be other city services that you are required to do or required to comply with. Things that may seem like inconveniences are ultimately could be helping you in the water that you may inevitably drink in your area. Um, and uh, because a lot of the runoff that ends up in in waterways and that ends up polluting waterways um, is caused by humans on land. Um, and so that is considered some that is considered non-point sources of pollution. So that could be dripping a little bit of gas when you're pumping your gas. That could be from construction sites. I'm sure many of us have walked by and smelled and seen what construction sites produce um, and just regular things that happen on the roads that end up in the waterways. So we've given you air, water, land, tools. True avatars. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> and so now this is my favorite part of the episode, our kind of takeaways. And so Nemo, what are kind of your major takeaways from the tools that we just presented? Yeah, so I've just been thinking about, you know, all of these things. We're talking about what humans do. And it just reminds me that deep change is required, deep cultural change is required. Um, and then knowing, like when we know the impact of our actions on the environment, it's heavy to think about, wow, I turned on my oven, I'm like burning gas, <laughs> or I got in my car, I pumped gas, or I'm gonna, I like flying, I like taking trips, um, may also have that, that may also be contributing to my footprint. So when you think about your actions alone, it can feel heavy. But are your individual actions alone enough to create a dent in the future of the world as we want to see it? Um, and the, the issues span physical locations. You know, in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia region, D.C. can have certain laws that protect their water where Maryland could have, wow, I said, I really, the longer I live in DC, the way I say Maryland changes, I just like slurp Maryland, um, the way their laws may be different. And so how does that work when we share a watershed? So ultimately all of our waters are co-mingling um, in larger rivers um, or lakes and streams. Um, and so there's one can say, well, regional environmental planning is the answer, but what is it? How are you going to stop people from littering? <laughs> and how are you going to stop people? How are you going to make people think about how to reduce their overall footprint? And then also thinking really grimly, like, have we, is it too late? I don't know. That's my thoughts. I'm going to stop there. Well, good thing we're not going to end the episode on that note, Nemo. I don't know if mine will be any higher, but I'm left with a little bit of fear and I guess it relates to the point I made earlier around considering these things when you're looking for a place to live. And my biggest fear is that walkability, clean air, clean water will be considered amenities 
that someone will have to pay more for. I think in so many ways, we already kind of do pay more. You pay, it's cheaper to live next to a highway than it is to live further away from it because of the sound and the noise pollution. But maybe that hasn't been fully amenitized yet. We haven't really thought of not living near a highway as an amenity. We just kind of know that we don't want to live near one. We haven't really thought of not living in an area that's polluted as an amenity. We just kind of know we don't want to live in one. I'm worried about when we reach the point where having clean water is an amenity. Like you cannot afford to have clean water. And this is very, uh, first what is it called first world problems like I recognize that in some parts of this world there are people who live on a day-to-day basis without clean water and without clean air um and don't have the option in America I don't know if the situation is that severe but I'm worried about when it reaches that level of severity here for us based on our climate changing and all of those things and so and I've even seen it. There's articles on walkscore.com around how much is one walk score point worth in an apartment. So like people have done different analyses to quantify the difference between an 80 walk score and a 90 walk score and how much someone's willing to pay more for per month to live in that unit. That makes me concerned because at what point do we then say, this unit has clean water. How much are you willing to pay to have clean water? When I think of clean air and clean water as natural human necessities, not amenities. So are you saying that, which I think is what I'm hearing is that the ability to have amenities walkable, I'm using amenities in a slightly different context here, but thinking about walk score being able to walk a friendly distance to get to your daily errands, that's being seen as amenity and they're quantifying it based on how much someone's willing to pay for rent. Um, And I'm like, wow, psychological, (laughs) the psychological aspects of it. But should having your, if you want to live in a city and you want your amenities to be walkable, shouldn't everyone in the city have like, that option without having to pay a premium is that is that where you're where you're getting at yeah and I think the maybe the walk score piece of it is like I mean there is a premium for living in a high dense environment that is a level of comfort that I can get with I become uncomfortable when we start talking about the potential for clean water and clean air to be amenities um that's when I get a little worried, especially thinking about climate change and different areas not being able to have those things any longer because of whatever reasons exist. So somewhat less darker note, actually. Well, I'm not about to say anything that's less dark, only that we drop episodes every other Tuesday. <laughs> and you can keep getting getting more and more of this content. Um, and we are on social media at Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.